Welcome back to Geek Life, the indie comics podcast on Pandamanga.com. I'm your host, JP. With me, as always, are my fearless co-hosts, Joe. Hi. And Marcus. Hola. Back with us again. What a treat. We have Melissa Pegluisa. Hi. <laughs> now, if you guys are interested in checking out Melissa's stuff, you can go to, well, pretty much anywhere you can have a screen name. She's Dark Sunrose. But if you want to go check out her comic, go to at cloudscomic.com. That's not the at symbol, but at cloudscomic.com. <laughs> I usually say at cloudscomic. Oh, that's good. Okay, right. I'm going to say that for now. Go to at cloudscomic.com. Very cool. Totally awesome comic. Go check it out. And anyway, so this is fun. Second week in a row we have Melissa with us. Thank you for coming back and hanging out. Thanks for having me. This week, we are going to be talking about a comic by Daniel Porata. Now, we met Daniel at our very first convention. Mm-hmm. He was one of the first people we met. We met actually a couple of our favorites we met there. We met Junior Bruce there. We met Melissa there. We met Daniel there. And as we were walking around, we met Daniel later in the day. Actually, before I get started, I have a funny story. <laughs> I'm going to turn Joe's face bright red right now. Okay. So we, Okay, so when we first got there... Uh, I don't know if it's the same because I think it did it change locations the Stockton Con? It did. Yeah. It did. Yeah. It used to be at the college and then it moved to the their bigger stadium. Right. So the way it was when we first there was actually kind of cool because essentially you were in this basketball stadium and so you've got a bunch of seats. It's like stadium seating and then this like flat platform that rings the entire area and then more seats. So that flat platform that rings the whole area, that was like the artist's alley. And it was huge and a loop was really cool. Anyway, so as we're walking around, this is our very first comic. We're getting up the courage to talk to people and ask questions and ask for comics. And like, that was terrifying. (laughs) And, uh, but as we're walking around, like, okay, that one's good. That one's good. That one's good. And we walk by Melissa's table and I'm like, yeah, we need to go talk to that table. That table's awesome. And he goes, dibs on the cute chick with, uh, with the fedora. (laughs) (laughs) So if you look, if you go back like that, (laughs) that's like the one interview I actually did. (laughs) (laughs) Cause I was doing a bunch of the interviews. And Joe was like, that one's mine. <laughs> anyway, so, so um, I just had to embarrass Joe real quick. Anyway, John, you, you interviewed me, uh, and I'm hoping that when you saw me, you said dibs on the chubby guy with the marshmallows. <laughs> I mean, no, okay, you want to know something really bad? You're sitting next to Neil, right? Mm-hmm. And it wasn't clear whose table it was. Oh, and I okay. fully started to talk to Neil. <laughs> and you were like, it's actually my comic. I was like, hi. <laughs> So, sorry. (laughs) Anyway, all right. So, moving on. So, we're talking about Zot's Serpent and Shield, issue two by Daniel Parada. Now, this is a loose term for issue because it's, oh, I don't know, 150 pages. So, (laughs) what, 130 something pages? Without the back matter, it was down to like 120. Yeah, which is still a good three or four issues. Like, that's a ton. So, anyway. (laughs) He did split it into parts, though. He did. He split it. He split it. He's like, like chapters, right? Yeah. So you've got issue one, chapter two, chapter three. Chat's like, dang. Which I appreciate because now I feel like I read like a bunch of stuff. A book. Yeah. Like yeah. a, like a, we did nothing all, but we words. read, we read a trade. Yeah. So the first one, the first trade was about 50 pages of comic. And I'll, I'll gloss over real quick what the story was there. Essentially, you're following, well, actually, you know what? Why don't I read what he has on his site that explains very eloquently what the comic is? Okay, Zots, the multi-arc story, has supernatural elements and is set in 16th century Mesoamerica in an imaginary world where the Spaniards never fully conquered the Americas and new empires are born from the ashes of a 40-year war. In the midst of all this chaos are the twin brothers Pakal and Khan, whose characters are loosely based on Hunapu and 
Jibalank, the hero twins featured in the Popol Vuh. Pakal and Khan live in the fictional village of Chan, located somewhere... I guess I'm kicking my ass already. Um, living somewhere in... Please leave all of this in yeah. podcast. <laughs> located somewhere, located somewhere in Chuchimatane's mountain range, near the disputed border of the fictional Placao and Teotl empires, successor states of the Aztecs and the Highland Maya, formed after the Forty Year War that drove out the Spaniards. Daniel developed a story over the last six years and was motivated by the lack of Mesoamerican stories in our popular culture, which is surprising given the immensity and complexity of Mesoamerican cultures, past and present. Trying to capture some of this grandness with a single tale was perhaps the biggest challenge in the development of Zots. Well, I'd say he did a pretty good job. Yeah. There was practically nothing in this comic that I wasn't familiar with when I first came in. I didn't recognize any of the clothes, any of the weapons, any of the terms. You know, I think the only thing that I recognize is when they were talking about corn, they called it maize. I was like, yes, something I know. <laughs> <laughs> it definitely brought me back to social studies in grade school. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's really, I, I wish that social studies was like this. <laughs> no, honestly, <laughs> some of rad. this read like a text. It did, like yeah. An, Oh, not like, you know, a school text. Yeah, not, but not like boring, but it was very textbook. interesting. I feel like I feel like he really did a very good job of I guess how to describe. You can you can tell he really has a lot of reverence and respect for the culture and the history Definitely. and the fables and the, the, the lore. Like it's really there's a lot of care and appreciation for that. He doesn't gloss over it assuming that you'll know. He doesn't gloss over it assuming that you won't care. He actually like anytime there's anything that is outside of what he perceives as sort of normal popular culture knowledge, which is a substantial amount in this comic, he actually will do a little asterisk and then an explanation below. And I really felt like it allowed me to have a deeper appreciation because you can kind of bumble through a comic and read some words that you're not really familiar with, you know. Mm -hmm. But in the modern age, I'm used to reading a book. And if I see a word I'm not familiar with or I'm kind of like oh, in this context, you know, I, you, you know, I'm reading on my Kindle or whatever you click on it and say define, you know. And so we're used to not having to deal with with the fog of just not being clear about ideas and concepts and words. And so it's nice that he goes out of his way to do this because this is so unique and interesting that this has terms and things that I would imagine might be difficult to actually find on the internet, or I wouldn't even really know where to start, you know? And so it's, it's cool that, that he goes out of his way to speak to an audience that probably isn't familiar with the subject, but at the same time, show a lot of reverence and respect for the subject and not really pare it down to the point where it's just, you know, simplified, you know, it feels mm -hmm. like he did a good job of that. I thought he did a good job of not overwhelming us with the information. It's, because I wasn't familiar at all with the content of the comic. Mm -hmm. And I felt it was such a nice lead way of having these two characters lead us into understanding more of this world. Well, it's great that he chose the two boys to basically be country bumpkins. Because then their world and their lifestyle is pretty easily definable and not overly complex. And so within the first issue, you can get a pretty good glimpse and sort of assume an, enough that you can kind of get a feel for who they are. And then they go out into the world and they're introduced to this big, wide world and rich history and culture of Mesoamerica. And they're introduced to it along with us. Yeah. And that's a really kind of cool way to go about it. And their story is very familiar. Going out, seek revenge for their destroyed village. Right. And in the first issue, they actually go through the whole story where, I, as I was reading in the about part, he was saying that the story of the brothers is a is a in a way sort of a parody of the story uh, of this fable of these two brothers that eventually became 
you know, one of them became, I think, the sun, and his wife became the moon. And so it's just this, it's really neat. And so there's a lot going on behind the scenes in this comic. And it's just, you can tell that, in, I guess I'm reiterating myself over and over, but you can sort of tell there's a lot of respect to the rich culture that goes into this. And it's just neat to be able to read a comic and have it not be another zombie comic, another this comic, another that comic. But not that I don't enjoy all those things, because I totally do. But it's kind of cool to actually have the comic, like, knock you on the forehead and be like, you got to pay attention. I like that. I think that's fun, you know? I mean, I don't know that necessarily I would want to do that all the time. It's like, I don't think I would want to exclusively watch art house films, but it's sort of nice to be called out as a viewer and be like, pay attention. This is important and complex and, you know, you're going to lose it. You're going to understand what's happening unless you're really paying attention. I think that that's nice to visit media that does that. Yeah, I spent a lot of time in the back row during my uh, educational years doodling pictures instead of paying attention. And this sneaky devil managed to educate me. Uh, I know. And, like in an enjoying way. Like I actually enjoyed reading the book. And at the same time, I learned things. And I was like, what's happening? This isn't right. <laughs> so as we always do, we'll go ahead and break it up into two sections. First, we'll talk about the story. Then we'll talk about the art. So the story. What do you guys think about the story? Nice epic. It I made actually... me feel. I had feelings. You had I feelings. Felt... <laughs> it made me feel feelings. This is bullshit. I came away feeling really sad, though, and yeah. like a sense of... I could just feel like there's tragedy that's going to be coming. Yeah, there's a very melancholy feel to the whole comic. You know? But it, it wasn't so that I wanted to stop reading it. It, it wasn't was, crushing. Uh, yeah, it yeah. wasn't crushing, but... When every battle they went into, I was just waiting for the other foot to drop. Whether yeah. it be one of the brothers, you know, takes it or like uh, the their their mentor dies, I was just like, that's going to happen. Oh, it's gonna and happen. he... At the end of that last part, he gives the, uh, Johnny, I'm going home to my wife. It's my this. last battle. Yeah. It's oh like, oh, God. God, he is so dead in issue three. <laughs> so in the first issue, which we're not talking about today, but I'm going to give you guys, bring you up to speed. Essentially, they're out living a, a peaceful, calm, sort of farmer lifestyle. Their father used to be this, like, badass warrior in that 40-year war that is, you know, the, the history leading up to this story. Then a bunch of bandits show up. And basically sack the town and they're looking for their father and basically kill, rape, pillage, murder everybody else. And it's just really horrible and vile. And the little world that you grow to appreciate in the first few pages of the comic gets totally wiped clean with violence and fire. And it's just terrible. And at the end of the first issue, the boys are like, we survived and we're going to visit revenge on these guys. And so that's where we start, is the boys basically are collecting some gear, burying the bit, the dead, and then heading off and following the track to try and take these guys on. So that's where the story picks up. So anyway, so back to the story. So what did you guys think of the story in issue two? I will say that in terms of the beginning part, leading on from issue one, the death of the, uh, I don't want to give spoilers, but... No, go ahead. Uh, the death of the... Oh, the girlfriend? No, 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 no. Uh, the how they killed the raiders. Oh, yeah. Oh, how yeah. they killed the bandits. The bandits. It seemed a little anticlimactic. Like I was building it up like, yes. to be, like they were going to have this really epic battle with the people that they needed to get revenge against, and then they were gone. Yeah, you mm -hmm. know, I saw that the comic was over a hundred pages long, and all of that was comic book. It wasn't just a bunch of back matter and, and preview stuff. That, okay, over a hundred pages of actual comic pages, and. I was assuming that there was going to be this sort of like long, hard track to try and take revenge on these guys. And it gets handled in the first, what would be probably the first issue of this, yeah, the first yeah. chapter of this, it is just done. And so then it's kind of like, well, now what? And they managed to do a really good job of sort of leading through, but I did feel like there was a bit of a lull in the middle. And I felt like the middle has 
which is just the way of things when you're doing character development. It's yeah. always hard when you're doing character development. You can't be having a bunch of things that are outside of the sphere of influence of your characters affecting them and causing them to re react and interact with it because you have to show them, show you who they are before you can do something terrible to them and make people care. Yeah. <laughs> right. I mean, and so it's, it's difficult when they do, when they really lean in a writer and artist, they go in and they, they really lean into the, the character development. So I think that's just kind of part of it. And I'm glad that they didn't have that feel in the first book. The first book was kind of like, wow. Yeah. And then the second book gives you that kind of crescendo of action right in the beginning and then goes into all this deeper character development with the boys. Mm -hmm. But yeah, you're right. I did feel like the pacing was kind of funky there. I mean, he, they, they picked it up right afterwards and kept the story going really well. But that was kind of a bold choice to, to finish off all that really quick and then kind of force the characters to say, oh, well, that took us a couple of months. Now what are we going to do with the rest of our lives mm -hmm. right. since our village is gone? Yeah, they can't really we go have back. No, it's not yeah, like we they have get to no... be done in return. They, they're just wandering. They're like, okay, yeah. you know, it's pretty wild. Vengeance is had. What next? Yeah, it did feel like there was a climax a little early there. I was going to say that I really liked the way he started, like the very first like page or two, where in the first issue, you're thinking, oh, this is just the story we're telling. But in the second issue, it's clear that this is a story being told and that it has this sort of campfire verbal history sort of storytelling feel which i feel is sort of like it, it's like romantic and entrancing somehow and it just it sets the tone for the rest of the book it allows the book to be able to take some liberties with reality or with the supernatural and have you just take it in stride and not be kind of like well wait 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 because every comic at some point will have to draw the line in the sand of what reality allows for example in melissa's comic right she has a young girl reading a book that is unfinished and is becoming entranced in the book and then it's done. She's like, ah, and she has to find out what happens next. That's like a super, super simplified version of what's going on. Wait, how is she like again? <laughs> ah, <Okay>. um, <laughs> you know, but, but what I'm saying is, is that if the young girl all of a sudden like walked along and then the, this flying carpet flew by, it was kind of like, oh, okay. Melissa is making a very clear decision about how this world works. You know what I'm saying? Like that's he kind of a clunky a way. He set a set of truths. He right. let us know what the truths are so that when we happen upon stuff, we accept it. It's not anything. Uh, the blue. He did do a really good job of definitely of leading us into the story and setting the tone of what was going to come. Yes, I agree. I think that that that's an important thing to do because if you leave it ambiguous for a really long time, and then all of a sudden out of left field, be like, "Just kidding! There's magic in this world." It's kind of like what, <laughs> you know? And so to start it out of the gate with this heavy emphasis in the first issue of lore and history, and then brutality and all that. It's kind of like, okay, here's the tone. And then in the second issue, he jumps right in and says, this is a story being told. It gives him flexibility as a writer. I have to admit that when I started reading the comic, there was like this huge, large text intro yeah, mm. and how to pronounce things and the history. And I actually skipped over that mm -hmm. because I wanted to just jump into the storytelling aspect of it. And it didn't take away at all no. to me. So my my only critique was when I was reading this is that seeing all that text actually overwhelmed me yeah. where I'm like, I don't know, starting this comic, it's all this reading I have to do. <laughs> you know, when I went back and... to read it a second time and was taking notes, I was curious how I was going to be able to pronounce this stuff. And I went to the back of the book automatically thinking that that was there because I remembered in the book that there was a pronunciation guide. Yeah. And that's awesome. Don't not do that. That's awesome. There's enough different in this world that it's like, okay, we need that. But to have it right in the beginning is a pretty steep cliff to climb before you actually get to the pleasure of looking at the pictures and hearing the story. And I'm wondering if he did that because he was afraid that if we read the names that um, 
we would be taken out of the story. Yeah. And I know I mispronounced names as I read them, oh, yeah. but sure. it didn't take away at all from wanting to read it. And I'm wondering if maybe he would take that intro and maybe put it in the back. Because I know a lot of books do that where there's like a rich history and a glossary of how you pronounce stuff. Yeah, the first my... Dune has that. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, you look at any of the Lord of the Rings books and there's massive appendices in the back. But if you had to wade through that in the beginning, you'd never get to knowing anything about it. But if that was a fear, then I'm just saying it's unnecessary and that you don't need all that text to make people jump into your story. Appendices sounds like a medical condition. Just saying. (laughs) (laughs) I think one of the most powerful scenes in there was when the brothers came across to Pakal's love interest, Kotsi. Oh, yeah. The scene with her. Yeah. Heartbreaking unbelievably heartbreaking and not only just terrible what happened to her which is just abhorrent but at the same time the fact that they get to meet but she's already made this commitment to die and that he gets the one kiss he's been wanting his whole life and then it ends with blood and it's just so heavy (laughs) i was just kind of like oh so sad now i mean it's just like it was really powerful and it's very clearly going to be used as a plot device to be a wound that this character, Pakal, is going to have to deal with forever. I mean, he struggles later on with being able to sleep just because of that one day, that one moment. It kind of haunts him. Yeah. I did feel that as a woman, I felt very depressed reading it because so far you have a woman who was raped and kills herself over it. And then later on, the intro scene of what would you call them? The pleasure woman? Yeah. The oh, prostitutes. Yeah. And I'm not taking away because I'm sure that's part of the whole story, but... it's I, I would say that it's probably like accurate to the history and culture, but yeah. it's kind of alarming as a sort of modern American reader. And I do think that it's good that in the beginning of the book, he says, like, this book is violent, there's nudity, there's sex, and it's because... There was. This is the world that they were living in, and this is something that I feel that people should l- learn about. But it's still kind of like, oh my god. Yeah, no, that wasn't to to devalue right. that aspect of it at all. I'm just saying that he was able to give this sense of feeling of being a woman during this time period. Yeah. You know, it, it was hard and he got that across very well. Yeah, and actually it's interesting as you say that because there's a substantial amount of back and forth between the boys and the women, especially the prostitutes. There's like a lot of conversation there, more than you would expect given the sort of the place that they that they occupy in the world. You know, it's, it was interesting that they could communicate back and forth and talk about things. And it was just interesting. I thought that it was cool how the gods just kind of show up and nobody bats an eye, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. You know, like... like Very right. Greek. I liked it. Yeah. 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 Although, I have to admit, the flower god that was just huddled in the corner while they were having sex was really creepy. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that all of a sudden, they're just like, he's having a threesome with these two girls and then... The next thing you know, there's just this this like yeah. god with this, this crazy headdress who's just like a perv, just sitting in the corner, got like know, a bag of popcorn, and yeah, just, just chilling. Be like, yep, yep. Welcome to the flower realm. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so it's basically taking their perception of the world and making it a reality for us to experience it. Yeah. <laughs> and you can tell that they live in a world where these stories aren't just stories, and expect them to be real. When someone from these stories shows up, it's exciting and it's magical, but it's not like, wait, these are real? Like, there was never a moment of like, whoa, 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 a god just showed up? I thought that was just a story. Like, that never crosses their mind. The god shows up, they interact with them, and then they move on. And it's just like, yep, that's how it is. Oh, I talked to so-and-so. I talked to this wizard who turned into a, a bird and flew away. And the, the brother's like, what did he say? Instead of like, you did what? <laughs> <laughs> I like how his excitement, though. He was like, you saw a wizard? Yeah, that's, that's awesome. awesome. <laughs> Tell me all about it. <laughs> I think it goes back to the introduction to the comics set that up for the expectation. Definitely. All tied in very well together. 
Any other thoughts about the story before we move on to talking about the art? No. All right. Well, we'll go ahead and take a quick break. And when we get back, we're going to talk about the art of Zot's Serpent and Shield by Daniel Parada, issue two. You're listening to Geek Life. Stick with us. Geek Life, we're talking about Zot's Serpent and Shields, issue two. Let's talk about the art. What did you guys think about the art going into issue two? The first thing that popped out to me and something that I noticed or had the luxury of, of kind of knowing going in after meeting him in person is that I would say I save like two pages in this entire issue and the text, it's all done by hand on paper. He doesn't scan in his sketch and then do inking over it on the computer. He doesn't do inking, scan it in, and then run it through Photoshop to have transparency. And then on top of that, do the tones and the pictures and the, I mean, and the colors and stuff. It's all done by hand. You know, everything. If there's blacks, there's a texture to the blacks. It's not just a solid black. If there's gray, there's a texture to it. If there's sort of a fade or a tree, there's this, there's this sort of painterly brush stroke kind of feel to it that only comes from doing it all by hand. Now, it's unbelievably laborious and really unforgiving and much more expensive. But at the same time, I just want to acknowledge that he did that. I think that that's really awesome, that it's becoming more and more rare with the kind of tools we have available. And I think that it's 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 brave and impressive to do such a huge story and do so much of it with traditional media. It's very neat. And I think it adds a sort of romance and charm to the whole thing. Um, that's just really cool. So that, that still got to me right away. I mean, when you look at the two page spreads that he does, oh my God. they're, I mean, they're, they're artwork. It's just, it's, uh, yeah. it's, it's artwork. I mean, he does these beautiful landscapes and he puts the landscapes so are insane, right? Nature what I wanted into to it. comment on was just the landscapes were so beautiful and oh. the, the little light details that he put in there. I just stop and just stare at the landscape. I'm like, yeah. oh. It's unbelievable. Take a moment yeah. with the scene. Right, just really. Some, just the stuff he did with the atmospheric diffusion. Like mm. You can tell he's studied how the atmosphere dissolves at different intervals of distance. Yeah. It's uh, nice know, and detailed up front and less and less. And he even did like this gray silhouette of trees behind the boys at one point when they were having this conversation, when they were in theory standing against this forest. And normally he renders everything really in a lot of detail. But 
you know, it, it really worked right there that he did do that. And so he does, it's not that he's uncomfortable rendering it in a different way. It's that he's made a decision to do this really detailed rendering of it. I mean, and we're talking, especially the line art is so complex. You know, there's all this defining shade and tone and hash marks and all that sort of stuff that's just awesome. I mean, and I'll put a bush to me is a squiggly line and a tree is uh, <laughs> two lines with squiggly lines to make the bark. And when you look at his artwork, it's, it, it puts me to shame just because it's so, like you said, detailed. And it's like, oh, okay, that's a tree. And you can almost feel the texture of the leaves on his, on his bushes and on, on his trees. And so he was just super successful in his environments and making it feel like this is their world and you just stepped into their world. It's confident, too, because the amount of lines that he, I mean, the amount of inking that he uses to describe something instead of going to you know the the what i'm guessing is probably like a prism colors or copics to sort of describe the gray tones um is is very confident you know one of the things that i can remember struggling with when i was first trying to learn to do that is that you know like in in japanese comics it's very common to use hash marks or something like that or, or speed lines to describe blushing and on the face of a Japanese comic or a Japanese cartoon, it's typically very, there's not a lot of detail given to things like the nose and the eyebrow ridge and things like that. They tend to simplify that a lot because it's more sort of like feathered and light and pretty. And so to come in and on top of this very carefully like suggested features more than anything, because you could go in and describe all the features and you can get this really detailed sort of thing, but that's more, that's, that's not the style. And uh, it's more like they're suggesting with the least amount of lines possible this very delicate face and then on top of that to have a this that same character you work so hard to sort of very carefully suggest these delicate features to go like line 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 right in the middle and have it not look weird is tricky real tricky and he does the same kind of thing all over the place and it's just kind of like damn like just like all right that needs some shade and just does it and it doesn't not work i guess it doesn't have the messy feel that sometimes people who are a little more clumsy with that struggle with it's very cool there was one minor thing that uh this is actually kind of going against what you were saying earlier about being able to do everything <coughs> overhand <laughs> but uh and it's because when i do my comic i i always adjust levels there were a few spots where um there's large areas of black and you can see the different uh like the little white dots from you know they just appear when you go over areas sure, sure. in with a you know a brush or whatever tool he was using um that i personally would have preferred to be preferred is not a word preferred to be like full on black mm. um and i mean granted it, it added texture to it but that's something that i felt like could have been finished up better you know and it's funny because i feel the opposite way i'm glad he didn't go in and try and perfect something like that there was a scene or two where there was this beautiful sky in the night sky and you can tell that he selected around the trees and then did a gray tone gradient shift and it just looks wrong because it doesn't fit in the rest of the comic if he had set a precedent of here's how i'm going to describe things with computer generated color and fade okay i personally don't like that anyway but mm -hmm. like that's that's how he's you know that he set a precedent and this is how we're going to do it but he does such the, like beautiful like traditional media renderings of everything else that when that's in there i think and by proxy what you were saying before about trying to make everything that that was supposed to be black really truly rich black i feel like that might have lent a sort of like awkward sort of like that doesn't fit kind of quality to it because that's what it looked like to me when i saw those scenes where he had those fades and it was like that that's a computer fill that doesn't look right 
Yeah, I feel like there's a difference though, just because with a with gradient, blacks, yeah. a gradient can you can very easily tell a great. Oh, that's from a computer. True. But with a black, that could be accomplished with you know, sharpies. You know, a black, a true black, fill it in. I think is is easy enough to do. Sure. Granted, there's a lot of work here, and if he wanted to get more work done, <laughs> if he wants to give me more pages instead of filling in those black, I'll take it. Yeah. Because yeah. a 136 page comic is a uh, nothing to scoff at. No. Six years later. Yeah, sometimes you're a little bit limited when you're working on pages. Mm-hmm. You know, there's about 100 more pages to go. <laughs> yeah, I mean, sometimes time is an issue. I mean, and I know we're talking about independent comics, and so there's no publisher breathing down his neck. But, I mean, to get anything done at all, you have to be your own publisher. You have to set your deadlines and meet mm-hmm. them and be strict with yourself. And so no matter who you are and what level you're working at uh, or, or how much, the you know, you have outside forces trying to, you know, suggest when things need to be done you're on a time crunch always with comics this is the way it goes no i really enjoyed um and it kind of goes back to what we we're talking about earlier about him you know having respect for the the world that they're that he's telling the story and yep. and you know really knowing it or at least doing the research for it when they join the the group of raiders the different costumes that all of the different tribes wore, I felt because that, that amount of, of detail right. was really, really interesting to see and really, really, you know, fun for the eyes because it wasn't just a thousand people wearing the same thing. It must it was, have been so much research he did for this. Yeah. I mean, so much research. So well done there, sir. I mean, the different kind of costumes, they vary so much. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. I mean, and there's some that, you know, the, the, especially the feathered ones where he was drawing every feather right? on the costumes. It's like... I love the headdresses. Some of the headdresses made me laugh right out loud. Like when, when the <laughs> when the wizard came up to him, his headdress looked like a ridiculous, like, cartoon chicken. <laughs> I mean, and I, I, that's probably how it's supposed to be, but, like, I just couldn't... I was... <laughs> like, I mean, it was just funny. I, I really mean, liked it, uh, the headdress of the uh, the general and the opposing army. The, the alligator sea monster, right? That was oh, yeah. fantastic. It does seem a little bit complex to be able to take into battle. It's kind of like, oh, somebody's going to grab, somebody's going to grab onto that tail. Sure enough, yeah. <laughs> I know it's not detailed to mention, but you guys see the tattoos on the ladies. How I thought they were just really interesting tattoos. The way did you notice yeah. how they came alive after he yeah. drank the drink? That was awesome. I did not catch that. Oh yeah, there's one scene there's where they're like phrase. laying down and they're saying like, how, when they're saying like, how do you feel? And he stands up like, like a god. Like right before that, <laughs> right before that, um, the two girls are laying down and one of them has like a snake kind of coming towards her abdomen center and the snake is peeling off of her body and is coming forward. Oh, I got to go back and yeah, check that really out Yeah, it's really cool. Yeah. Thanks for lowering your voice when you said like a god too. That uh, it's gonna be on your ringtone. <laughs> <laughs> oh crap! It is weird to have so much of your voice on the internet. People could do all kinds of ridiculous stuff with oh, our voices. We have to auto tune you now. Oh my god! <laughs> so good, so good. That's like my that's my catchphrase, dude. All right, let's see other thoughts about the art, you guys. Just remembering what we talked about when we reviewed his first issue, that there was a couple of shaky spots. And how much that improved when he got to that little, like, Ashcan 1.5 yeah. issue that he gave us. And then looking, looking at this. Even more. Yeah. Guys, leaps and bounds every time he touches the paper. Unbelievably ambitious. Yeah. The scenes that he does, the vistas, the amount of people. And he renders them all. He doesn't do the, like, well, let's just, you know, let's turn that into a silhouette. He's like, I want to render everything. Yeah. I'm just thinking to myself, like, looking at it, it's amazing, but it makes me exhausted just thinking about trying to do that. One of the lazy te- techniques an artist can use, um, <laughs> I utilize all the time, is that uh, the eye, you know, from a reader's standpoint, will fill in a lot for you if sure. you don't have it there. If you mm-hmm. have a wall of bricks, if you just draw a few, a few of the outlines of the bricks here and there, the eye will actually be like, oh, that's a brick wall, and yep. he'll know it. Yep. He doesn't utilize that at 
all. Yeah, I know. When he shows a crowd of an, like an army, he's drawing it's every single head. Every <laughs> yeah. single hair on everyone's head is there, which is waiting to fight, and he doesn't hold anything back. Which is interesting because you, one of the reasons why artists use that, you know, you say lazy, but some of the times it helps things not to feel congested. I actually like using that technique a lot. Not, yeah. not in the sense that oh, it's lazy, but I feel that when you let the viewer fill in the blanks, it creates this engaging quality yeah. that the viewer that feels invested in. Definitely. Sometimes I'm in the simplicity mode where if you can use enough to tell a story, then that's what's needed. I really hope people think that I'm that deep. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm just lazy. (laughs) Uh, One one of the final things I wanted to say artistically, because we've been gushing about how detailed it is. Did you notice the scene where they were burning down the bandits' huts? How there was a lot of detail there, but it was almost like it was unraveling. Did you notice that? Like it was much more gestural, much less fine detail. And my catchphrase, I didn't catch that. It was rendered much looser than the tight detail of the normal comic. It gives this sort of ferocity to the fire, like it's tearing the world apart, just burning up reality itself. Like it has this really mm-hmm. crazy look to it. Um, instead of that sort of meticulous detail he does and everything else, there's all of a sudden we move into this, like it's like a feeling, which I thought was really cool. So. Well, any, any other thoughts before we uh, wrap up, you guys? I say the comic looks like something I probably normally wouldn't read. Mm-hmm. And I feel like I did myself a disservice by saying that because when you gave me the PDF to read this, uh, he created this world that was just so easy to jump into. Yeah. And so I had a lot of fun reading it. I remember feeling the same way when we first came across it. I was mm-hmm. kind of like, this is not something I would normally choose, but I was so glad that I came into it. I mean, I don't want to pigeonhole it and call it a, a war epic, but um, it it's there's uh, war and it's epic. It's, yeah, definitely. <laughs> um, I got to echo the same thing. I first started reading it, and I was like, ah, I'm not sure if I'm gonna enjoy this, and then I'm glad that I got all the way through because yep. it ended up being really, really good storytelling, really, really good art, fantastic art, and uh, I can just really appreciate the amount of time that it must take to get that much work out yeah, at so that level. It's really amazing. So, again, we've been talking about Zot's Serpent and Shield by Daniel Parada. You can find and purchase and check out samples of Zot's at Zot's, that's Z-O-T-Z, comic.com. Well, thanks for listening to Geek Life. We always love to hear from our listeners. Please email us at geeklife at panamanga.com with your questions, comments, and insights. Anyone interested in becoming a PM contributor, go to our contact page at contact.pandamanga.com and fill out the form located there. Music has been provided by AirPlus Recordings. As always, links to the artists and songs featured in this episode are available in the show notes at podcast.pandamanga.com. If you'd like more information about AirPlus Recordings, visit airplusrecordings.com. This is Melissa, and we'll see you next time.
<laughs> 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 um, 